Our scripture passage for today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our service today, both of you here who are in person or those of you who are watching. I hope you had a very safe and enjoyable week this past one and that uh, you'll be ready for this upcoming one. But first, just to take this time to be refreshed and renewed by God's word. And so without further ado, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray for the Lord's blessing. Father, we ask that your grace and mercy would be upon us as we sit at your feet once again, and that you would speak to us and empower us by your Holy Spirit as the word of God is being preached. Lord, you know all of the heartaches and all the hardships to which we've had to endure and are still enduring. And yet, Lord, we know that the promises of the gospel are sure, and therefore we are people of hope. Lord, fortify our hope yet again on this day so that it can sustain us this upcoming week and that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. <clears throat> amen and amen. You know, back in 1971, a popular singer by the name of Marvin Gaye came out with one of the most haunting and hopeless songs in Billboard history, and the song is called, What's Going On? The opening lines sets the stage for the overall despair that the song is still known for to this day. And it goes like this, mother, mother, there's too many of you crying. Brother, 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 there's far too many of you dying. You know, we've got to find a way to bring some loving here today. And then the chorus, arguably the most hopeless portion of the song, goes like this. What's going on? What's going on? Oh, what's going on? What's going on? Hmm. You know, it's been over 50 years since Marvin Gaye said those words in song form, and yet those very words are still spoken by so many who are just as haunted, just as hopeless as Gaye was half a century ago. What's going on? Why is our world, why is our life so dark, so despairing, so distressful? Whether you're considering the tumultuous political climate that we're in in our society today or the growing racial unrest of our culture or the continuing problems of the pandemic or even the everyday trials and tribulations to which we all have to go through. It just seems that our lives both individually and collectively is spiraling out of control to where we cannot help but to ask what's going on. We're continuing our sermon series through the core values of NCF. And the purpose of this series is to consider the fundamental convictions that we have as a church that uniquely identify us as a ministry, but also clarifies the priorities we are to have as a ministry. And today we take a look at the fifth core value that pushes us through as a church, and that is worldview engagement. Worldview engagement. And if you're here today finding yourself unfamiliar with that terminology or what it entails, then you need to pay special attention to today's message because as you'll see in just a moment, it's by being ignorant of this very concept that you'll find yourself unable to ask and answer that very question of what's going on. And so to prevent that from happening, we take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 6, where here the Apostle Paul is going to tell us three things to where if we apply it, we can 
satisfyingly answer the question of what's going on in our lives and in the world. So with that in mind, three things I want to share with you. First, we're going to talk about the source of our problems. Then we're going to talk about the reason to get into arguments. And then we're going to end it with the power to engage. The source of our problems, the reason to get into arguments, and finally, the power to engage. Let's begin with the first point, the source of our problems. Read again with me verse 3 and 4 of our passage where the Apostle Paul writes the following. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Okay, so here from the get-go, Paul tells us exactly what the source of all of our problems are. It's the problem of war, or as he puts it, warfare. But if you listen carefully, he tells us that this is not the typical kind of war that normally we would think of, okay? It's not the typical kind of war at all because why? This is not according to the flesh. In other words, this kind of war that Paul has in mind doesn't involve the usage of weapons that cut, shoots, or blows up the flesh of the human body. No, it's a kind of war that according to verse 4, tears down or destroys strongholds. Strongholds. Now, what in the world is a stronghold? Well, if you consider a typical war case scenario, a stronghold is a fortified building occupied by the enemy that gives them a tactical military advantage. But considering that Paul already said that this is not a typical warfare scenario, he must mean something else by that word. And so the question is, what does he mean by that word stronghold? Well, consider this very clear explanation from Bible scholar Warren Wiersbe as he explains what Paul means when he says, quote, there are walls of resistance in the minds of people. And these walls, like the walls of Jericho, must be pulled down. What are these mental walls? Reasonings that are opposed to the truth of God's word. Pride of intelligence that exalts itself. Paul was not attacking intelligence, but intellectualism, the high-minded attitude that makes people think they know more than they really do, end quote. In other words, a stronghold is a way of thinking that not only is wrong, but doesn't even know that it's wrong, okay? In our modern parlance, we would call this fake news thinking or conspiracy kind of thinking. And considering the recent events that we've had to endure as a society, such as the raid on the Capitol building the week before the Biden inauguration, I think it goes without saying that stronghold thinking is very, very dangerous. You know, So often we tend to think that the greatest dangers that we have to face as individuals and as a society are those that can harm us physically. You know, the kinds of threats that can damage and destroy our fleshly human bodies. But the Bible says that the greatest dangers and the greatest threats that we face are those that come out of the human mind. Because it's certain ideas that come out of certain human minds that can make people very crazy and dangerous and provoke other people to be crazy and dangerous as well. A few years ago, I remember the atheist uh, Bill Maher was interviewing the New York Times political analyst Ross Douthit, who happens to be a devout Christian. And at some point in his interview, Bill Maher kind of takes a jab at Douthit's Christian faith when he says these words, quote, To have a normal person commit a horrible act almost never happens without religion. To have people get on a plane and fly it into a building, it had to be religion behind it. But then... Listen to how Douthat quickly responds, almost without blinking. He says this, quote, I think what is true is that to get a normal person to commit a crazy act, it does require ideas. But those ideas can be secular as well as religious, end quote. You hear what he's saying? 
It's not crazy faith that is dangerous to society. It's crazy ideas. And these ideas can come from a variety of sources. Yes, it can come from the religious zealot, but it also can come from a radical atheist. It can come from the right-wing conservatives. It can come from the left-wing liberals, you see? And here in our passage, Paul says, this is the kind of warfare you and I are engaged in. We are engaged in a battle of ideas, okay? We are engaged in a battle of ideas. This is what we mean by worldview engagement, where you engage the ideas of the world that is very dangerous to the world by trying to undermine it with ideas that are good for the world, that causes it to flourish and have peace and prosperity. And of course, I'm thinking of Christian ideas. In other words, it's the thoughts and ideas that come out of the Christian mind, the Bible says, that is actually good for the world, that causes the world to flourish and have peace and prosperity for everyone, not just for Christians, but for the whole world. Now, before I go any further, I just want to pause for just a moment and let what I just said sink in. Because there is such a common misconception that many people have about Christianity. And you know what that misconception is? It's the belief that says faith, by very its nature, is anti-rational and therefore more driven by emotional superstition or fragile psychology. One prominent late atheist by the name of Christopher Hitchens would propagate this misconception so often when, when he would do his routine talks across the country. Take a listen to what he once said many years ago. He said this, Quote, faith is the surrender of the mind. It's the surrender of reason. It's the surrender of the only thing that makes us different from other mammals. It's our need to believe and to surrender our skepticism and our reason, our yearning to discard that and put all of our trust and faith in someone or something. That is the sinister thing to me. Of all the supposed virtues, faith must be the most overrated, end quote. You hear what he's saying? He's saying faith by its very nature does not think. But Paul says, no, the opposite is true, at least when it comes to our faith. Because our Christian faith is all about ideas, because our faith is fundamentally about the truth. The truth. And because it's all about the truth, it is something worth arguing over. Worth arguing over? Yeah, worth arguing over. What do I mean? To explain, let me go to my next point. The reason to get into arguments. Read again verse 5. Where Paul says, we destroy arguments and every loft of opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Okay, come on back. Here Paul tells us that as Christian thinkers, we are to destroy something. And what is that? Arguments and lofty opinions. As followers of God, we are to destroy arguments and lofty opinions. Now notice what Paul does not say. He does not say we are to destroy the people we get into arguments with Rather, we are to destroy the arguments that, of the people that we argue with. And this is such a crucial distinction to make, especially in our cancer culture that we are living in right now. You see, what we often observe is that when people get into arguments, it turns out that people want to destroy the person rather than the argument that the person is making. I don't know what it is, but it just seems that as a society, we just take things way too personally, and we are way too sensitive to where in the context of argumentation, we demonize and villainize those that we argue with. But God makes it clear in his word, this is not how we are to engage in argumentation. For consider what it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 15, we read, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this, listen, with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ 
may be ashamed of their slander. Did you guys catch that? As we engage the ideas and worldviews of others, we do it with a spirit of gentleness and respect. And practically what that means is that we don't hate, we don't humiliate, we don't hurt those that we argue with by gross mischaracterizations, by name-calling, or taking cheap shots against them. You know, I cannot tell you how so discouraging it is in this social media age that we are in of how people who claim the name of Jesus have no problem of stating such vitriolic name-calling to those that they argue with. It just so is not right. And yet I totally get it. I totally understand how in the heat of the moment, our passion for the truth can be intermingled with our sinfulness to where we end up wanting to hurt the person that we argue with. I totally get how easy it is to succumb to such a temptation. And the question is, how do we avoid it? What Paul tells us in our passage is by remembering the reason we argue in the first place. Consider the second half of verse 5 where Paul says, Take every thought captive to obey Christ. And there it is. Here Paul tells us the ultimate reason why we engage in argumentation, why we engage the ideas of the world with the ideas of our faith. It's so that the person that we're arguing with could eventually obey Christ. But here's the thing. Jesus makes it abundantly clear. There's only one way for a person to truly obey him. He tells us in John 14, verse 15, listen to what he says. If you love me, obey my commandments. If you love me, Jesus says, obey my commandments. Jesus tells us that the only way a person can truly obey him is if they truly love him. But let me ask you, who in their right mind would love Christ if those who represent him, i.e. Christians, are hating, hurting, and humiliating such people in the context of arguments? Christian, we must remember this, that the reason to why we argue is not to win the argument, but to win the person who we're arguing with to obey the one who loves them. Let me say that again. The purpose to why we argue is not to win the argument, but to win the person that we're arguing with to obey the one who loves them. You see? Now, if you're here today investigating Christianity, you might find this reason somewhat appalling, maybe even downright offensive. The idea that our goal as we argue with you is to get you to obey our God, it just sounds so controlling, so conquering, so condescending, as if to say that our agenda is to get you enslaved to our master, right? But before you come to such a conclusion, I want to read to you just a sampling of some of the commands that Jesus commands his followers to obey. And I want to come back with some commentary. These all come from the same source, Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Take a listen to these respectively. First, starting in verse 27 of Matthew 5, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go to hell. And then down in verse 43 of the same chapter, you have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? 
Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, here are two commands that Jesus gives. One deals with sexual immorality. The other one deals with violence. And with that established, let me ask you, do you think our world would be better off if the whole human population obeyed these two commands or if they didn't obey these commands? You know the answer, right? Our world would be so much better off if just these two commands were followed consistently and chronically by people everywhere. And that's exactly my point. So often we tend to think that God gives his commands in his word so that he can display his power over us, as if to express his controlling, narcissistic demeanor, to express how superior he is to get you to do what he commands. But consider, who are the primary beneficiaries of those who obey God's word? It's us. It's mankind. It's humanity, right? If people followed the commands of Christ, Our world would be better off. Our families would be intact. Our countries would be in peace, right? And when you make that realization, do you know what that means? It means this. The more the ideas of Christianity spread to where the more people are obeying the laws of Christ, the better off the world is, the more peaceful, the more prosperous, the more our world flourishes, you see? Now, If what I'm saying right now sounds very self-serving given that I'm a pastor and I'm a Christian, then don't take my word for it. But maybe you would consider the words of Tom Holland. And no, I'm not talking about the British actor who plays Spider-Man in the Marvel movies, but I am talking about the Oxford-trained English historian who recently came out with a massive book called Dominion. Take a listen to what he said in an interview not too long ago as he reflects on the New Testament. And notice, he's not a Christian, by the way. But listen to what he says. Compacted into this very, very small amount of writing, the New Testament, was almost everything that explains the modern world. Concepts like international law or human rights, all these kinds of things, they don't go back to Greek philosophers or Roman imperialism. They go back to Paul. His letters, along with the four Gospels, are the most influential, the most impactful, and the most revolutionary writings that have emerged in the ancient world, end quote. You hear what he's saying? Here is a non-Christian pagan scholar acknowledging that the whole world that has been impacted by Christianity has been deeply benefited by Christianity. And when you recognize that, you come to this realization that when you, Christian, seek to engage worldviews through argumentations in respectful and gentle ways, you are actually fulfilling your mandate of blessing this world, of making good impact in the world. You see? Maybe you do see. And maybe you do agree, but you don't agree in that you want to involve yourself in this kind of engagement. Because even though you know you're not supposed to destroy others in argumentation, it just doesn't seem the other side has gotten the memo. It goes without saying that being a Christian today is not a safe thing culturally to where if a Christian is ever so bold to express his Christian convictions, cancel culture is ready to come upon them and maybe come upon you if you dare try to do the same yourself. And as a result, you might be very tempted to cower away and not engage the worldview of others, of not engaging the ideas of the world with the ideas of your faith. And the question is, what can you be emboldened with to where you can do your part of blessing this world through worldview engagement? Well, the answer to that leads me to my final point, the power to engage. Read again verse 4 
of our passage. Paul writes, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Here the Apostle Paul tells us where we find it in us to overcome the temptation of cowering away from engaging worldviews. He says we must have access to divine power. Divine power. Now what in the world does he mean by divine power? Well, I can think of no better explanation than the one given by one of the most unlikely source, Napoleon Bonaparte. You remember that guy? You remember the former French emperor, the great military tactician? Right? Listen to what he said at the end of his life concerning Jesus Christ. He said this, quote, I know men, and I tell you Jesus Christ was not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. <clears throat> there is between Christianity and other religions the distance of infinity. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon sheer force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men will die for him. End quote. The power of Christ's love. That is the divine power that Paul is speaking of here. And Paul goes on to say that this power is only accessed through faith in the gospel. Because what is the gospel? The gospel is the message that says you and I and every human being that has ever existed should not expect God to treat us with gentleness or respect. Okay? In fact, we should expect the opposite treatment from the Lord. Why? Because you and I, along with every other person that has walked on this earth, are so self-centered, so self-promoting, so self-worshipping, i.e. we are such sinners that we've caused nothing but pain and misery to those around us, and therefore we deserve nothing from God except Him destroying us. Okay? Not even to engage in argument, not even to speak a word, but just to smite us down. But the gospel goes on to say that God chose not to destroy us, but instead allowed Himself to be destroyed by coming into the world as Jesus Christ, as a man, and suffering the full penalty, the full punishment, so that you could receive the full pardon of all of your sins, past, present, and future, by putting your faith in him as your Lord, as your Savior, as the God who loves you. That is the gospel message. And the only reason why your God does this is because he loves you with a love that is willing to forgive, a love that is willing to suffer, a love that is willing to die for those who are not worth dying for. And friends, when you grasp that love for yourself, when you believe this is how much your God loves you, you will be emboldened to engage any sort of ideas, no matter how daunting, how intimidating, no matter how overwhelming or fearful it might be, because you have experienced the greater love that was willing to engage something even more threatening against him for you. You see? It is only through faith in the gospel that you find within yourself the courage to engage the ideas of the world with the ideas of your faith. And the question is, do you believe that gospel? Do you believe it? If you do, then you, along with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who also embrace that gospel, you guys will be able to bless the world in such a way that songs like what's going on will never have to be sung ever again. The question is, will you participate in this great blessing? I pray that you do. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that as we think through and process
our responsibility to bless the world and what it entails, we ask, Jesus, that you would enable us by the power of the gospel, by the power of your divine love for us, to really truly engage the world and the ideas that it has and bring it into submission through the submission of love and the ideas that come out of our minds that have been regenerated by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that we would truly grow in the knowledge of God so that the ideas that come out of our mind would not be worldly but instead godly, that they would be infused with the truths of Scripture and applied by the wisdom of the Spirit. God, we ask that we would be people who would truly be wise, not in our own eyes, but in an alignment to your holy word. And Lord, we pray that we would be emboldened for the sake of the world to engage the worldviews that the world has for its own good, even in spite of itself. Father, give us that courage and let us not succumb to the pressures of canceledness. Help us to be bold. Help us to be ambitious by your spirit. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.